The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. I hope the sound is okay. That sounds. I was uh, thinking about the Dharma teacher um, and Zen teacher Joko Beck. I don't know if anyone knows who she was, but I consider her. Um, in some way in my own lineage as one of the ancestors and and I feel like one of the important ancestors for Dharma practice in the West. Um, she, I think she passed away about um, maybe five, five or seven years ago and she was 96. So, so she lived quite a long time, and um, she was the teacher at the Zen Center of San Diego. Some people consider her to be um, kind of Vipassana person's favorite Zen teacher, <laughs> because she, um, she... It, within the Zen tradition, she pioneered um, a way of practicing that I think would feel very at home for us in terms of welcoming all the different parts of our experience, especially our thinking. Um, sounds, anything. We <laughs> um, and she, she came from a Japanese Zen tradition where um, there was a very strong emphasis on um, a kind of sharp kind of concentration. So to take this, you know, uh, one point or one word and really just repeat it over and over and unify your body around that and have a a strong energetic uh, experience, you know, and there's a certain beauty to that and value to that of this way that we can take the multiplicity of consciousness and un- unify it and and bring it to singleness. You know, and it's like when you bring all these energies together, it's like, you know, almost in a way like wind. If wind gets concentrated, it can get very, very powerful. If it's, you know, there's wind everywhere, but if it's, if it's blowing through a small tunnel or a small thing, it has kind of a tremendous force to it. So there's a certain kind of energy and style of practice where that's, that's sort of the intention. And, 
So she practiced in that tradition and she excelled in that tradition um, and was made a teacher by her teacher who was Maizumi Roshi from, from LA, Zen Center of LA. So this was in the 70s. And um, however, she also saw that when our practice is only about unifying and concentrating and, and um, kind of creating this special experience, just the way a spotlight leaves a lot in the shadows, um, she saw that that kind of practice um, might be leaving a lot of who we are in the shadows that's not illuminated. And so her teacher, who was by all accounts quite an accomplished meditator and quite a powerful presence, um, had other problems that weren't illuminated, you know, and, and, and was an alcoholic, you know, and had other, other issues. And um, so that got her to really question, you know, what, what is missing from this practice? And she, she felt that um, something about our emotional life and emotional well-being was missing when there's just this uh, emphasis on um, creating a certain kind of state. So she, um, you know, she's a Zen teacher, right? She's, you know, so she has her Zen center in, in San Diego, but she stopped... Um, she, she let go of a lot of the trimmings around Zen practice. So she stopped wearing robes. Um, she uh, simplified the practice. Um, I think she even took the Buddha off the altar and put a beautiful stone and flowers. And, and, and that outer simplification um, was reflecting an inner way of working with the practice and meditating, which was not so much about creating some special um, transcendent energetic experience, but was about recognizing that the Dharma is always here. And if the Dharma is always here, reality is always present, is always being expressed, then every single moment of our life, every single moment of our practice is, is worth giving attention to, is worth being with just as it is. Um, so the emphasis was not so much about getting away from here and getting to something else, but was about being so fully here that we could see the beauty and the depth of each ordinary moment of experience, that any moment um, is it. Any moment is expressing the Dharma, expressing the truth. If we have the sensitivity, if we have the willingness to open to it. Um, Someone once asked her, you know, after all these years of practice, you know, something like, what's your practice like now? And she said something like, Oh, I just sit around and think, <laughs> you know, and um, there's a, a number of different ways to understand that. But what I 
I think she's challenging us to remember that thoughts are part of the Dharma too. That it's not like the goal is to sit and get to a blank mind. And if we can get to a blank mind and just extend that, extend that, extend that. Um, sometimes we get to, we have experiences in meditation that are beautiful, that are so calm, that are so still, where there aren't really thoughts, or there aren't much, there's not much thinking. But if our freedom depends on not having any thoughts, <laughs> you know, it's a little bit of, maybe it's, it's, it's not that useful of a freedom because we need to think that thoughts are going to happen. And so rather than not having thoughts, how can I somehow live with harmony, live in harmony and with wisdom in relationship to thinking and thoughts? So thoughts are something that flow through, but um, there's enough mindfulness and enough awareness and wisdom that um, we can choose what is what what kinds of thoughts are um, should I believe should I act on should I trust and what kinds of thoughts are more like the sound of the leaf blower you know that it's like it's something that's passing through it's part of the the sort of furniture of our mind in some way but we don't, we don't take it so seriously you know it's like you know it's part of the landscape and we know that we each have certain kinds of habits and certain kinds of conditioning that will produce certain kinds of thoughts and um, you know they, they don't they don't bother us so much um, because we see them as thoughts and we're, we're, we're not so willing to just take them on face value and believe them. Um, so, so this teacher, Joko Beck, she uh, formulated a chant that I think is often chanted in her center and from her, her students who have their own Dharma groups. And it's, it's a, I would say it's a reformulation of the Four Noble Truths, which is a teaching that, you know, some people say is, the, is one of the, the core teachings of, of, of Dharma, of Buddhism, that all the different Buddhist traditions, you know, whether they are Theravada, Mahayana, Zen, Tibetan, Vajrayana, they all share as this basis the Four Noble Truths. Um, which is the truth of suffering, that there is suffering, there is stress, there's, there's difficulty, there's unease, um, and there's a cause for that suffering, which is our clinging, our grasping. And when we release that clinging, we release that grasping, the suffering that's caused by that grasping is released. And then the fourth is, you know, so there's suffering, there's the cause of suffering. The third is that there's this end of suffering when we let go, let go of the grasping. And then the fourth is um, that there's a path to, the, to this end of suffering. There's a way of practicing. 
And sometimes the Eightfold Path is included in that. So this is the Four Noble Truths. And, and so Joko Beck has this teaching, this chant, which is based on, on, on these Four Noble Truths. What I like about it is it gives a picture of practice that's very, um, at least for me, I find it very easy to relate to it and very easy to quickly, oh yeah, that's what I'm doing. That's what we're doing. So in her teaching, it goes like this. um, Caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering. Caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering. So this is the first one. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Then the third one is each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. And then the fourth, you know, this path, being just this moment, compassion's way. So I'll just say it again. Caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. And then being just this moment, compassion's way. And so, you know, it kind of has this little bit of a different flavor. Um, When we think about, um, especially for me, if I think about my mind and my life before encountering uh, Dharma practice and certainly after encountering Dharma practice as well, being caught in a self-centered dream would be a very good description of, <laughs> of a lot of the moments <laughs> of my mind. <laughs> you know, and, and I love that word caught. Like to be caught by something, it's like we're stuck in some way. Um, and um, we're, so we're often sort of stuck we're caught in the mind's dreams, the mind's fantasies, the mind's ideas, the mind's worries and fears and planning and um, uh, desiring and uh, uh, remembering. And what, what these dreams, the thread that often runs through these dreams is that they have a central starring character. <laughs> this film has a central character. It's me. <laughs> you know, and um, when we're caught and when, we're, when there isn't awareness to realize that we're caught, what this is suggesting is it brings suffering. Um, it brings pain, it brings separation, it brings 
it's like this filter that we put over experience that's always relating whatever's happening back to me and with this idea of me how is this going to affect me what do i want what is, you know and so um we're not taking life on its own terms. We're not seeing other people on their own terms. It's like it's, they're all, um, you know, maybe we could say they're one-dimensional or something, but, but um, so caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, and holding to self-centered thoughts exactly the dream. Um, what I think the key word here is holding. And w- how I understand this is, um, yes, there are thoughts, and yes, there are um, images and patterns of the mind that we get stuck in, that, that keep us in this realm of suffering. But to hold to self-centered thoughts, for me, that implies something that is in our bodies. Um, I'm often amazed how in a moment of remembering, a moment of mindfulness, I'll notice that my body, this body, there's a kind of holding in the body that feels so extra. And so I often hold tension in the shoulders, but like, there's this way, and on, off, if, if, if there's enough awareness, I can see that, that that tension often goes along with thinking. But it's like, I, it's just so clear to me that in a moment, there's this extra like kind of holding, kind of bracing against something. And is it possible to trace back ways, habitual condition ways that we hold ourselves, that we hold tension, that we hold certain emotions in place, certain ideas in place. Um, and I think it goes along with thinking. I don't know, I think it's, it's often difficult to say what comes first, what comes after, but there's this kind of feedback loop. Um, where, where we hold this sense of separation, this sense of a separate self, um, this sense of myself as the center of things that needs to be sort of protected, defended. Um, and there's a way that we hold that in the body. Uh, so holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. And I think a big part of our practice is um, becoming more and more sensitive to the way that we hold, what we hold in the body, how we hold the body, um, with compassion, with kindness, but to really feel, you know, because if there's, when there's no awareness, we're, we're totally in the dream. And, you know, so we're just playing this out, playing out this karma playing out this habit. But when, when, when we wake up in moments and we feel that tension, we feel that holding, we can bring this little bit of ease, a little bit of softness, a little bit of kindness. Um, so we're waking up something in the body. That's why I think the practices of, of yoga, 
of um, any kind of really relaxation that's embodied um, qigong, tai, tai chi, um, any way we can kind of return to the body and bring some awareness and bring some softening is very, very helpful for, for Dharma practice. So caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. And then um, the third line, which corresponds to the ending of suffering, you know, this is the waking up, this is the freedom, the realization. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Um, knowing a little bit about Joko Beck's background and the, the tremendous amount of pain she had in the relationship with her own teacher, who was like in some ways this very gifted, powerful, um, almost like a shamanic kind of person and monk, but who had a lot of personal demons which came out in different ways. And um, that teacher uh, went through different... Uh, crises, different scandals, you know, of like to do with alcohol, to do with women, these things. And at some point he um, kind of hit, hit the bottom and then sort of publicly acknowledged his problems and worked with his community and was able to sort of stay as a teacher and sort of work through a lot of this stuff. Um, and then I think at some point in the mid nineties, um, he, some of those demons resurfaced and he ended up passing away in Japan. And what the, what I think is, is understood about it is that he, he was drinking alcohol in the bath and ended up drowning or passed out and drowned. So, I mean, this is, you know, and wh- what what I take from that is not not to say that that style of practice is worthless because look at what happened to the teacher, but it's to say to with any style of practice or with any teacher, not to lose our own um, common sense <laughs> and our own wisdom and our own to take what's good and to take what's good from someone and take what's good from a teaching and a tradition and then to notice where might it be out of balance in some way and bring back, you know, uh, bring into it some of the balance. So I really appreciate Joko Beck and how she um, tried to sort of, um, learn from this. And um, so this line, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. And so this is a poignancy to me of like of the, of the, of the, the deep pain that she had from her own teacher. Um, and this, this question of, of course we have teachers, we're, you know, and teachers are important to us on the path, but um there's this sense in Dharma practice that the real teacher is life, you know, and and as we become more fluent in the practice, we begin to open up that 
each moment is teaching us when we have the um, sensitivity to, to perceive that. So each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Um, one of the definitions of Dharma is life as it is, the way things are. You know, so each moment, the Dharma is offering itself to us. It's not about finding some better moment, some different moment, some special moment. You know, usually we think like, this moment's okay, but there's got to be some great moment <laughs> that will really be the Dharma, that will really be the teaching. And so this challenge to us to, to, to be willing to see each moment as a teacher. Um, and what I would say is to, to notice, um, you know, without judgment, without criticizing ourselves, but just to become sensitive, become alive to um, when is it that we want to turn away from this moment? When is it that we feel like this moment is not it? <laughs> you know, um, each moment is it. So where do I feel that this moment is not it? This moment, may, it might be some sense of unpleasantness or discomfort or boredom or uh, repetition or it might be becoming aware of deep pain or deep discomfort. Um, but when is it that it feels like this is not it? This can't be it. I don't want this to be it. Um, that's very interesting. This is, a, this, is, this is a really important moment in practice because we're trying to open to each moment. We're trying to accept everything, be with things as they are. But um, it's not easy. And it, it may be more valuable to us to become sensitive to where do I turn away? Where do I not want to stay here? Where do I want to be like, okay, I've been sitting long enough, time to get up, time to finish. You know, because these are the moments of... Um, this is the moment where practice can change us. This is the moment where we can actually notice, wow, the heart, the heart is closing to this right now. And what would it be like to just be with that and apply some warmth, apply some heat, apply some tenderness to this moment because it feels like it's, it's, it's really hard to be here right now really hard to, to stay with this right now. Um, so each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. And then, and then, so how do we do this? And so she offers being just this moment, compassion's way. Being just this moment. Um, I think sometimes in our tradition, we talk about observing the moment, listening to the moment, 
bringing mindfulness to the moment, bringing awareness to the moment. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's very, I find that language very, very helpful. But it's like to observe the moment, to me, still implies a little bit of distance. You know, I can observe something that's way over there. <laughs> and the more unpleasant, the more uncomfortable it is, the farther I w- away I want it to be from me, I'll look at it through binoculars or something. Um, so I think often where we can practice in a way that still sets up this, well, the language at least, implies or reinforces a kind of separation or a kind of duality, you know. And if we're observing, there must be someone who observes, right? And, uh, you know, um, so I think in certain, certain ways that this, that language is very helpful and to bring in mindfulness, to be, to, to become aware really is very helpful. And then it seems like it's, it's going one more step, you know, beyond the observer and the observed, beyond the one who's aware and what is the object of awareness to say being just this moment. You know, to be the moment is like that, that duality collapses. There's just the sound, you know, the sounds of the, of the street. There's just the um, sensations in the body. There's just the thoughts that are passing through and the feelings and the emotions. And to be so willing to be that, that, um, you know, there's no separation. There's no one who's observing there's no one who is turning away. Um, we're, we're, we're sort of collapsing those barriers. So to be just this moment. And um, I think it can take a lot of, of courage to be just this moment because this moment is not something that we can pin down. This moment is always changing. This moment is always, is uncertain, is unstable, is just flowing. So to be willing to be just this moment is actually to be willing to open ourselves to vulnerability. It's to be, to be willing to be touched, to be willing to be moved, to be willing to take life as it is without projecting our own uh, attempts at solidifying, at uh, separating, at, you know, I think often our thinking is somehow, I mean, this is what planning is, right? Planning is a classic example of, we don't know what's gonna happen in the future. It's completely uncertain. So I'm going to figure it out. (laughs) I'm gonna decide right now how I want it to be. And I'm gonna take that uncertainty and put it into these containers of thinking, this structure 
of the mind. And, and there's something very satisfying about that. There's something that it takes that anxiety and that un- unknown and it just, you know, it just says, I'm going to decide <laughs> what's, you know, it's unknown, but um, this is how it's going to be. And so we project that into the future. And maybe, maybe the process of um, reflecting on the past and ruminating and remembering is almost like a way of projecting the same kind of structure into the past and to kind of understand something and remember it or repeat it. So the mind wants to do this. And, um, and it, so I think the uncertainty of the moment is why it's so difficult to be just this moment, to be willing to just let go of, of, of those um, understandable and um, um, sincere efforts to, um, to, to, to bring some sense of safety, to bring some sense of stability. But when, when we're willing to relax those, those efforts, we can open to this moment. And then it's like, it doesn't matter so much exactly what's happening. It might be a moment of where there's um, a sense of ease and joy and lightness. It might be a moment where there is a lot of thinking and there is some discomfort and there is some uh, unease and uh, anxiety. But to be willing to just be whatever is there. So what is it like to be anxiety, to be uncertainty, to not, to not separate from any emotion that's passing through, to not separate from um, any kind of pattern of thought, but just to be so willing to just inhabit the moment. I think it takes a lot of softness, a lot of compassion, a lot of uh, willingness to to open in this way. And then it also brings compassion. You know, when we're willing to really feel what's in the heart right now, to feel what's there, to open to vulnerability, this radical vulnerability that, that, you know, which is always the nature of things for, for ourselves and for others, it can bring a tremendous amount of compassion you know, just the realization that everyone, this is universal, everyone is in the same boat. Everyone is subject to this uncertainty of, 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 of change. And so, so this last line, being just this moment, compassion's way. Um, this is the way of compassion when we're really not separating from our experience. Um, what flows is compassion. What flows is this deep wish for ourselves and others not to suffer, 
to wake up from the dreams that we're in. Um, I thought to share a poem and I wasn't sure which one I wanted to, so I brought a few and they're all Mary Oliver poems, so at least we're okay. (laughs) Um, There's a, so, so this poem is called The Buddha's Last Instruction. And when we hear like the Buddha's last instruction, you're gonna think, okay, this is probably good. It's probably important. (laughs) And um, there, there are different opinions about how to translate the Pali. Sometimes one of the most common translations is to be a lamp unto oneself. Some some people say that no that that word, which I think the word is dipa, a better translation is island to be an island unto yourself. Um, but if you go if you go into this to the te- the sutra the teaching, I think lamp or light is is for at least for me I love the imagery or the idea of to be so sometimes it's translated to be a light unto oneself. Um, Another translation, which I like even more, is um, you are, it's like to dwell with the understanding that you are light. You are the light itself. It's like, there's not, it's not like there's a light, not like to put a light onto yourself to illuminate yourself. And it's not like there's a, there's a light that's deep inside of you. It's like the self is light. The nature of the self is light. And when you think about what light is, light doesn't have a particular form or a particular shape. It has no boundary, right? You know, light just goes and goes and goes. Um, it's not substantial in any kind of way that we think about substance. So it has no boundary, no substance. So to dwell, you are the light itself. Dwell with this knowing that the self is light. This is our refuge, to dwell knowing that the Dharma is light. You know, take refuge in this, in the self as light, in this Dharma as light. Um, so, so that's a little bit of a context. Buddha's last instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man He lay down between two sala trees, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward. It thickens and settles over the fields, 
around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly, I'm not needed, yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. I love this idea of, um, what did she say? Clearly I'm not needed, yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Um, For me, that's sort of the essence of this teaching. Each moment, you know, is the only teacher. It's like what what might in our usual way of thinking feels so um, ordinary or so meaningless or so, you know, I can discard this. I don't have to think about that or that's not important. Um, And I think with this, it's like Mary Oliver reminding us that each moment, each thing has its own value. Um, That's... Um, you know, that's, that's like inexplicable, that's incomparable. It can't be compared to anything else. You know, when we're awake, when we're alive to our life in that way, then um, each moment has its own magic. Um, we let this, this light just permeate our, like a million, what does she say? A million flowers? Things like, um, so, so thank you. Thank you very much. We have a few minutes. Um, wonder, you know, if anyone has comments? Um, questions Uh. I have a question um that's kind of central uh, theme in this chant is the dream. But you didn't talk about the dream very much. So I'm wondering how you interpret the dream in this um, teaching that it is so deep and 
about uh, what you have to say about illusory nature and the dream. Yeah, thank thank you, Randy. It's a, it's a great question, and you noticed I glossed over the radio. <laughs> um, I mean, one way of understanding, you know, just the caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering, and holding the self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. So in this chant, in, in this poem, when teaching, um, referring to the dream of our separateness, the dream that we, you know, we're in and out of all the time, which is the world according to me. And um, dreaming and waking up is pretty central metaphor for Dharma practice. You know, Buddha, you know, means one who is awake. Bud means awake. Buddhism is kind of the religion of waking up. So what do we wake up from? Well, the dream of our separateness, the dream, the illusion of the dream of our, of, of our self-centeredness. Um, and the, and the, you know, when we're caught in the world, according to me, that creates its own world, its own kind of reality. That's its own, maybe we could say its own distorted reality. So, um, the reason, the reason I, I say, I mean, so that, that's kind of the basic, you know, and, and so, so we wake up to the, the fact that I was dreaming, you know, and, it, and this world is a lot bigger and a lot more complicated and a lot more beautiful than just the world according to me. Um, One of the, the one of the reasons I hesitate a little bit is that one of my friends, who is a student of Jokobak, they used to chant this chant, and then at some point, about six years ago, I, I didn't remember this, but just when I looked up the chant in my email, I saw this email, and and it was a message from the teacher, and he said, "I've changed the chant." <laughs> what? <laughs> So um, he, I don't know if they still do this, but this was in 2012. I saw the email. And I don't think I even noticed that I got it then, but I saw it now. It's like, and he, he changed the second line. So rather than, so it's caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering. And rather to, so it's right now, I mean, the, the original is holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. And he changed it to, Waking up to, I think he changed it to waking up to the dream within a dream. Something. It's something like that. It's waking up. I think I can find it. Waking up to the dream within a dream. I think it was. But it was and I was curious of why did why did he change that line? And knowing this teacher, Barry, his name is Barry Madgett, who's a, who's a Zen teacher in New York City, knowing this teacher, I think what he would say is that um, we're always 
in some kind of dream. You know, it's not like you wake up to the true reality that's timeless, that's beyond all dreams, and then you always just see life as it is. What he, I think what he's saying is we wake up, the big part of waking up is to know I was dreaming. And so maybe he's sort of implying that um, um, we can never really get outside of a dream. You know, it's like um, perception is always some kind of illusion. You know, I think if you if you look at the sort of neurology and the science of it, it's like the world isn't out there. The world is sort of, you know, just like, you know, when you have a, a, a film or something, it's like the mind, each of our minds is creating a world and is 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 sort of putting things together. Perception is um, creating our reality. And we can't ever stand outside of that, you know? Um, so there's always, if you think about it in that way, there's always some kind of dream that's operating. And some dreams can be very, very far from um, what we would say our shared reality. And maybe... Maybe, maybe that's the line that separates what we would call in our modern world mental illness. You know, if someone is hallucinating and is having, hearing voices and seeing things that everybody else is like, I'm not hearing those, and that person is, they're in a certain kind of dream. Um, and a certain kind of reality. And if we're in the sort of share, you know, if we all basically agree on our dream, we call that reality. <laughs> okay, it's Tuesday, February. This, uh, um, but it's like I think by, by saying to wake up, waking up to to the dream within a dream, it's like there's always a dream, and within that dream there are dreams. Within that dream, within this shared reality of perception we have our dreams our other dreams are you know so um but there's no way just the way there's no way that we can stand outside of impermanence there's no way we can stand outside of the dharma it's like this river that has no river banks you know if all there is is change how do i stand outside of that well, we can't. And so it's like the way to practice with it, the way to relate to it is to, can I so fully open to it, so fully acknowledge that who and what I am is this river? You know, that's being just this moment. So it's being willing to... Um, uh, wake up to the fact that all there is is this dream that's that's my understanding and that's how so you know so the dream has different levels and different ways of understanding but
Yeshul. Uh, the last part of the chant seems to require a leap of faith to compassion mm. because, you know, for me, I don't see that being a, a necessarily linear or a, a relationship that would actually happen to, yeah. to get to compassion from would you repeat the yeah, last b- part? Yeah, being just this moment, compassion's way. You know, so the way of compassion. I mean, so so one understand. I mean, I I, I completely, I, in a way, it's it's a sort of surprising. You know, how would the willingness to just totally surrender to this moment, however it is. And usually it's not that great. <laughs> how would that be the way of compassion? Or how would that be compassion's way? Or how would that engender compassion? Um, I mean, I think the one, I mean, there's a, there's a number of different ways of understanding it. And I think it's, it's a great exploration. I don't think there's any formula. But what for me that brings up is that it, ta- it for one thing, it takes a lot of compassion to be willing to be the moment, to be willing to open to the suffering in this moment, to be willing to open to suffering that's in the world. I think the main reason we don't want to open to it is because there's, there's pain there, because there's suffering. If it was just all bliss, then it's like, okay, I'll, I'll be bliss. I'm willing to be bliss. But to be willing to open to the, the, the depths of, of beauty as well as suffering in the world, it takes a lot of compassion. So one understanding of it is the way to surrender to the moment. To the, the only way, one of my teachers says, compassion is sort of like the last resort, <laughs> but it's the only thing that works. You know, we try everything else. <laughs> we try to power my way through it, try to think my way out of it, try to plan, try to, but only when we can really open up to this moment with some love, some tenderness, some care for the, the pain that's there, that's what works. That's what allows us to soften and be this moment. So it's like the path, the method is compassion. When I can bring compassion, when I can soften that, that, that is exactly what allows me to sort of melt into this moment, to be this moment. So it's like, it's the way of compassion. So that's one way of understanding it. And, and so when, when I feel like, no, I can't be this moment right now. <laughs> I don't want to be this moment. Um, that is a great mindfulness bell to see if it's possible to bring in some compassion because it's a sure sign that there's some suffering there. There's some pain, you know. I, you know it, and it could be as simple as I sit down to do my morning meditation and there's agitation. There's a little bit of sort of unease or irritation or fear or stress. A 
okay, I've got to do this and this and this today, and uh, body feels like this. It doesn't feel so good. I'm just sitting, I'm, do I really want to sit with this for 20 minutes <laughs> or whatever? That is like a great, just to notice that like, I don't want this. I want it to be different. That's a great mindfulness bell. Rather than to say, as a mindfulness bell, to say, let go, come back to the breath, uh, try harder. Let it be a mindfulness bell to bring in compassion, to bring in, oh, right. This is dukkha. This is suffering. There's, there's suffering right now. This is a noble truth. And to open to that with some care, which, oh yeah, right, this is hard. It's hard to be a person. It's hard to just sit here in the mess of my crazy mind. <laughs> this is hard. This is painful. But if we bring in the compassion, okay, may, may I be free from suffering. May, may, may some ease and some tenderness and some love meet this suffering. And it's like, oh yeah, right. I can do this. And so, so then that, for me, that's like, it, it's a doorway into this moment, to be this moment. It's like, oh yeah, this is compassion's way. And then the more I sit with that and sit open to be willing to just be what's there, it's like compassion's the doorway, but also more, com- more and more compassion arises. It's like, oh yeah. Um, when the heart that's open, the open heart meets suffering, you know, it's said that compassion naturally arises, spontaneously arises. So compassion is what opens our heart, helps us to open, helps us to soften into this moment. But it's also the product, the more the heart is open. So it becomes this wonderful feedback loop, the more the heart is open. Um, what naturally flows is compassion. You know, it's not like I have to manufacture something. And um, anyway, so that's, that's, that's the way that I connect them. But you can see in your practice, how do, how do they relate? How might being this moment um, be the way of compassion, be the way of kindness? Um, kindness is another great word. You know, if compassion is, is too... Sometimes compassion can feel a little technical or it can feel, you know, love, kindness, care. Those are all, you know. So, uh, you're welcome. Okay, well, thank you. And uh, may we all um, uh, remember that it's totally our our inheritance, our birthright, our nature to be just this moment. You know, what else could we be? (laughs) We're always being just this moment. Um, But to remember that, and when we can sort of soften that with compassion, soften that with with love, um, something beautiful can happen. So, thank you.